some of you are wrongly believing at this point that there's no way that he's going to preach as long as he normally does. <laughs> so if you have plans to leave early, you might want to reevaluate things. You might want to use those cell phones that ring every now and then to go ahead and call whoever's supposed to meet you. By the way, if you have one, turn it off. Uh, that way I won't have to embarrass you. Anyway, the story's told of a, uh, an atheist who's living next door to an old woman who was a Christian. And every day he could hear her praying and praising God for all the things that he had done for her. One day, however, the old woman fell on hard times and she had no food in her house And the atheist overheard her praying to God to please send her some food. So the atheist goes to the grocery store thinking he was going to fix this gal once and for all. Buys two bags of groceries. After placing them on our front porch, he rings her bell and then hid in some nearby bushes. When the woman comes to the door and she sees these bags of groceries, she started giving thanks to the Lord for sending the food. At that point, the happy atheist jumped from the bushes and said, Aha! The Lord didn't send you those groceries. It was I who put them there. And without even a pause, the old woman shot back, Praise you, dear Lord Jesus. Not only did you send me groceries, but you had the devil pay for them. (laughs) I love that story. You know, the Bible teaches that God overcomes evil with good. And today in our ongoing study through Luke's gospel, we see one such example. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 45, where our attention will be focused on the greatness of God as it's demonstrated in His power over evil and also displayed in His plan of escape for you and I. In Luke chapter 9... Verse 37, we pick up the account with these words, and it says, And it came about on the next day that when they had come down from the mountain, a great multitude met him. And behold, a man from the multitude shouted out, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into convulsion with foaming at the mouth as it mauls him, and it scarcely leaves him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, O unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. And while he was still approaching, the demon dashed him to the ground, and it threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. You know, if you'll recall from our previous message, Peter, James, and John had seen the greatest revelation of God's majestic glory ever granted to mankind on what would become known to us as the Mount of Transfiguration. They witnessed Jesus' divine essence, His glory shining through His physical earthly body. And they viewed or they got a glimpse of what we, God's redeemed, shall be like one day when Jesus returns in all of His glory. You know, they saw and they recognized Moses and Elijah as they discussed with Jesus His impending departure. 
And what a sight that was. Jesus talking to Moses, who had been, who had been physically dead for over 1,400 years, and to Elijah, who had disappeared from the earth 900 years prior to that. You know, and from this account, we, we get much hope and, and we take uh, much consolation in the fact that, you know, there's going to be a day that's coming for God's people when we're absent from the body and we're present with the Lord, that we will be with God's people and we will recognize one another. If you stop and think about it, they never saw Moses or Elijah. They didn't have photos of what they looked like. And yet there was a heavenly intuition that they knew and recognized who Moses and Elijah were. And we often hear people ask questions, will we know each other? And the wonderful truth of God's word is that absolutely we will know each other. But we will know each other in a way that God had always originally designed for us to know each other. Without any bad memories, without any negative thoughts, without any, oh, I can't believe that she made it. I can't believe he's here. Are you kidding me? You know, there will be none of that, you know. And it's, it's wonderful to know that when we get to heaven that we're going to be a, a, a little more intelligent than we are here on earth. And that's a wonderful thing. And yet, you know, they recognized each other even though they had never met. And what a, what, a, what a consolation that is to us. It's good to know that as we're, we're in the presence of God that all the questions that we ever have will be answered in a moment's notice. You know, Moses, the preeminent lawgiver, and there's Elijah, the foremost prophet, and Jesus enveloped in this luminous cloud what's called the Shekinah glory of God and the voice of God the Father who said, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. You know, this stunning experience uh, marked the three for life and all of eternity. They'd never be the same again. John, as we mentioned, would later write, And we beheld His glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. You know, First John, he talks about how he, he handled and, and, and was manifested before him the very glory of God. Uh, what a wonderful thing that was as a memory to get him through this lifetime and looking forward to what God has ahead for each one of his people. You know, and, and as they remembered these things and experienced, they, they witnessed and experienced the greatness of God. And in fact, they could not help but tell all who would come across their path of this majesty. It was Peter who later wrote that we were called from darkness into this, into this, ex, into this light so that we can declare the excellencies, the majesty, the greatness, the glory of him who has done so who can take someone who is dead to God and make him alive to God, who can take somebody that has no desire you know, for anything spiritual and, and bring him to a place or her to a place where they're born again by the will of God, not by the will of man. The supernatural birth that takes place that only God can do, and he can take somebody who's dead to God, and yet even when we were sinners, Christ died for us. Even when we were running from God, he was still pursuing us. The theme of Luke's gospel in Luke 19.10 is that he came to seek and to save that which was lost which is all of humanity. And this majestic view of God's glory would mark their lives throughout all of eternity. Peter, later inspired by the Spirit of God, writes in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18, he said, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my Son whom I love, my chosen one with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. You know, this vision never faded but remained an anchor for Peter's soul. 
you know, as a backdrop to our passage, we're told in Luke 9.37 that on the very next day, Jesus and the three came down from the mountaintop. You know, and if you've ever had a significant encounter with God, you know, perhaps you've been away on a retreat of some sort or a conference or a seminar, and you can relate to that mountaintop experience. You know how difficult it can be to go back to the battles of everyday life. You know, there's no doubt in my mind that Peter wasn't in a hurry to experience, you know, anything but the glory of God. It explains why he said, oh, it's good for us to be here. And now let, let me make three tabernacles or three tents or booths. And you know what? And, and, and let's just hang out here for a while. And if you've ever been there, in fact, one of you who were at the hospital in the lobby and were praying said, you know, it was, it was like it was a place where I didn't want to ever have to leave. And, and we can relate to that. We've all been there. It's like, this is great. This, you know, can we just stay here? And so I don't fault Peter for that at all. It's like, Lord, this is the greatest place to be. I mean, you know, think about it. How oftentimes we miss people who have departed or exited this life, but we know because of the confidence that we have in the authority of God's word that when they're absent from the body, those who have repented of sin and responded by grace through faith to the finished work of Christ, they trusted in Jesus' death on the cross and his power of his resurrection, and they received him as their Lord and Savior. They've been born again by the will of God, not by efforts or human works. And we know that when they die, that they go, to be with the Lord. And I'll tell you right now that, that they're not missing anything, and there's no place they'd rather be than the presence of their Savior. You know, we feel bad for us, but I just want to, you know, make sure that none of us ever mistakenly believe that they're not better off in God's presence than we are waiting for the day when we shall be. You know, there's nobody that wants to be there and get sent back here. You know, there's just no way. And neither shall we. You know, and it's a wonderful truth when you think about it, the battles of everyday life. Let's just stay here. It's good to be here. You know, you can understand why when Moses was on Mount Sinai, he wasn't in a hurry to leave God's presence. The Bible says he spent 40 days in his presence, and he wasn't in a hurry to go back down the mountain. And in fact, when he did finally have to go back down the mountain, he wasn't very patient with people. It's like, man, I've been in the presence of perfection. I've been in presence of glory. I've been, you know, and now, oh, look at you people. You're a mess. You know, dancing around, worshiping false gods. It's like, man, I leave you for a little bit and you're just a mess. You know, nobody's in a hurry to get back down to fallen humanity. You know, Paul had a glimpse of heaven. And, and the question that I had as I look at this is, you know, why does God give us through his word a glimpse of what we can expect? Why did Paul have a glimpse of heaven? Why did Moses get a glimpse of the glory of God? Why did Peter, James, and John get a glimpse of the majesty, the glory, the greatness of God? I am convinced that we get a glimpse of what's ahead so that it keeps us going while we're here. It keeps us excited about what we have to look forward to through the everyday grind of this life. We need that glimpse. But we need to recognize and understand that the work to be done is down in the valley. You know, God's equipping us for the work that he has us to do, the work that he has ordained for you and I, his people, to do before the foundation of the earth. God has given us a glimpse of his glory and what lies ahead. God helps us to understand that he's, he is not unfaithful, but he's faithful. And he rewards those who faithfully serve him. We've got something to look forward to. 
But in the meantime, we're to be busy doing what God has called us, chosen us, gifted us to do on His behalf for His glory and for His kingdom. You know, the whole purpose of halftime for athletes is to go back in and rest from the activity of the first half. To be able to be refreshed and rejuvenated and maybe have to make some game, uh, game plan adjustments. You know, we're kind of, you know, we thought this would work and it's not working. We need to take a step back. What do we need to do in the second half in order to be new, more successful? The whole purpose of halftime or the purpose of, of intermission between periods is to rest from the weariness of the labor. It's different for spectators. What's the whole purpose of halftime for a spectator? To get up, get something to eat, get something to drink. What's the whole purpose of the seventh inning stretch in baseball games? It's for the audience to get up who've been sitting there for a couple of hours or so to be able to get up and stretch a little bit because, oh, we're sore from sitting too long. I mean, let's just stop and think about that for a sec. <clears throat> oh, I'm just worn out from sitting here for two hours. Let's get up and stretch. And it's like, you know what? I mean, for an athlete, halftime or intermission is to regroup, to be regenerated, to be invigorated, uh, to make adjustments in the game plan. But for spectators, it's the only time they do anything. (laughs) I ask you this question, and you must ask of yourself with God as your witness, are you a spectator for Jesus or are you in the game? Do you need to take a step back to be refreshed and rejuvenated because you're busy doing what God has called you to do, gifted you to do, and commanded you to do, what he has given you a passion to do, and every now and then we need to take a step back and say, I need a little bit of a break because I'm a little weary from all the work. Or is your life indicative of the spectator that says, I just need to step up, stretch a little bit, and I'll go back down and I'll just sit down and relax. See, that's not an option. We all need to be in the game. We all need to be busy doing what God has called us, chosen us, gifted us, equipped us, empowered us to do for His purposes and for His glory. And you know what? That's between you and God, but one day you'll answer for that. And so why? And so my challenge for you is to recognize and understand that, you know what? We have an eternity to bask in the glory and the majesty of our Creator and our Savior. But while we're here down in the valley... We need to get busy doing what God has called us to do. You know, Dr. Luke wants us to see the contrast here. They saw the greatness of God on the mountaintop. And now they're going to see the greatness of God in the, in the valley below in everyday life. You know, we all love the mountaintop experiences. But you know what I've learned in life is that all the growth takes place in the valleys. That's where it is. That's where it's happening That's where people are. That's where hurting is. That's where needs are. That's where God's people must be. They would witness the greatness of God below in everyday life. You know, there are many events that are recorded by Matthew and Mark that are not recorded in Luke's gospel account. And there's also a summary statement in Luke's that isn't in the others, and that is the summary statement of the crowd's response that's not included in any other account but Luke's in verse 43. I want to call your attention to that once again. And it says in the crowd, they were all amazed at what? At the greatness of God. They were amazed at the greatness of God. 
The significance of that is readily apparent when we recognize and understand that the Greek word that's translated greatness is the same word that Peter used that's translated in retrospect on his retrospect of the transfiguration where it's, it's translated his majesty. The Revised Standard Version fittingly translates verse 43. It says, And all were struck with, the awe, with awe at the majesty of God. The New English Bible says the same thing, of the majesty of God. The King James tells us in the Amplified, they were all struck at the mighty power of God. They were in awe of God's power. They were in awe of God's greatness. They were in awe of God's glory. And we must be as well. And so with that in mind, what we're going to do is take a look at uh, how the greatness of God was demonstrated in Jesus' power over evil. And we find that in verses 38 through 43. And it says, And behold, a man, the multitude shouted out, uh, and behold, a man from the multitude shouted out, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into convulsion with foaming at the mouth, and as it mauls him, it scarcely leaves him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, O oh, unbelieving and perverted generation, how long will I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. And while he was still approaching, the demon dashed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the clean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. As the disciples and Jesus were making their way back to the valley, it's not hard to imagine them in deep conversation about what the speakers had brought to their attention at their retreat. I mean, they were at a buzz about what was going on. They were pumped up. They were, you know, as they considered, you know, the sequence of events, the coming of God's kingdom, the resurrection from the dead. Uh, You know, they were excited and their excitement ended abruptly, however, as they were cut off on the road by an evil driver by demonic forces that rudely brought them down to earth. And, I, and, and as I was thinking about that, have you ever experienced those moments where you're fired up after you go on this marriage retreat, man, you're all fired up, and you get in the car and you're talking about what's going on, and no sooner than you're three miles away from wherever you just left, you get in an argument about something? You know, or you go to those men's retreats, those women's retreats, man, it's like, you know, you go to men's retreats, you're all fired up, you know, bunch of guys together, all praising God together, you know, we're singing together, and we're learning together, and we're fellowshipping together, and we're playing basketball, and we're pounding each other on the basketball court together, and, you know, we're doing all these things, and, and then you get in the car, and you're driving down, man, what a great weekend, and somebody c- cuts you off, and you're like, what? It's like, you know, and it's like, wait a minute, what happened to the, you know, you know, ladies, you know how it is. You go to that women's retreat and you're all fired up. You're excited. You know, you're going you're gonna to make a difference. You know, your husband's just, you know, he's just not into spiritual things. He's just like a spiritual rock, you know, and, and he's not interested in anything. And you're going to come home with a whole different attitude, a whole different mindset. You know, you're going to win him by, by, by your behavior. As, you know, First Peter 3 talks about, you're going to win him to the Lord. You're not going to nag him anymore. You're just going to be this perfect example of a godly woman. And you're just going to live out this life. And as soon as you walk in the door, he's sitting in the same chair, he's scratching himself himself in the same place, got the newspaper down there, and you're just like going, yeah, I can't do this, I can't do this, it's like, you know how it is, and it's like, there's that, that, that all of a sudden reality hits you, you know, we're in the presence of God one moment, and then we're in the presence of each other the next, 
And it's just like, ah, oh, you know, and, and it's like, and then, or you walk in the door. As soon as you walk in the door, you know, you're gone on a couple's retreat and you walk in the door and your kids start. He did this. She did that. You should have seen what they did. And you're finding stuff out in the yard and in the bushes. You're going, what is this? Who's been here? Has anybody been here? And you find out from your neighbors. There's people over. They had a party. They had a party. It's like. You know, what in the world? And you're like, oh my gosh. And you're just going to go, we're going back to the mountaintop. We're going back. And you just get worn out. You know, and, and, and the whole point is this. They were all fired up. They were pumped up. They were talking about theological depth. And they walked down the, at the bottom of the hill. And the first thing they hit is, bam, demonic oppression. And let me just tell you something. Get used to it. Because we're no more vulnerable than after we've experienced the greatness and the majesty and the glory of God than at that moment in time where the enemy is just going to jump in and attack. We're at our most vulnerable place. The Bible teaches we're in a spiritual battle. That we're to arm ourselves with the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. To be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil is not in vain. It doesn't matter, ladies, how your husband responds. It doesn't matter, men, how your wife responds. It doesn't matter, parents, how your children respond. It doesn't matter, people, how one another respond. We're to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that that toil in the Lord is never in vain. And that we're to keep on living life to please our Savior. It doesn't matter how anybody responds to how we live. It's a question of whether how we live is pleasing to our God. Period. Because if you're looking for strokes and response from other people, you'll give up real quick. That's not why we do what we do. We do it to please Him, to glorify Him. We've been bought with the precious blood of His Son. Therefore, glorify Him in your earthly bodies. You know, Luke points out several things that will aid us in this battle, not only to help us to stand firm, but more importantly, to help us see the greatness of God. The first thing is that you ask is, how did evil present itself? We're told that a child, literally an only begotten son, was oppressed by a demon, an unclean spirit. Let's look at some of the facts about this child's condition. In verse 39, and behold, a spirit seizes him. And he suddenly screams and it throws him into convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And as it mauls him, it scarcely leaves him. And when you put together Matthew and Mark and Luke and you combine all the accounts, it was the most desperate of all scenes, a a, a man, a father, begging Jesus to look at my only son. The verb translated look at literally means to look with mercy upon him, Lord. Look with mercy upon my son, Lord. You know, it's never easy. Can you imagine? You know, and I'm thinking about the similarities. His only begotten son. Lord, look with mercy on him. God's only begotten son. You look to him for mercy. You know, as a, as, a, as a parent, it's never easy for any parent or parents to witness the suffering of a child. And it's even more pathetic and more desperate when it's an only child. We've seen this twice and now three times in Luke's account where we saw the widow of Nain, her son, her only son. We saw Jarius' daughter, her, his only daughter. 
And now this man, his only son, this child was suffering and, and, and it was a desperate situation. When you put it all together and you combine the accounts, we see words like, you know, he was very ill. He was a lunatic. He often falls into fire and water. He's mute. The demon seizes him. The word is actually a wrestling term. That, you know, if anybody's into wrestling, it's a word that, that the demon picks this child up and just body slams him to the, to the ground. And that's the word picture that we're giving of what a violent scene this is. Body slams him. He seizes him. He dashes him. The boy foams at the mouth. He grinds his teeth. He stiffens up with convulsions. This is every parent's nightmare. Have mercy on us, Lord. No one else has been able to help us. You know, I couldn't, think, I couldn't help but think of a couple things that we can learn from this. And, and first of all, after those mountaintop experiences, be prepared for an immediate attack by the enemy who wants, us to keep us, he wants to keep us from seeing the glory and the greatness of our God. He wants to take our eyes off of God's glory, God's greatness, God's majesty, uh, God's authority, God's dominion, God's rule, God's perfection, God's righteousness. And he wants to take our eyes off of him and then to turn it this direction where we lose sight of all of those things. That's what happened. Forget about the vision that you just had on the mountain. Look at the reality of the life that we live. We need to get focused back on his glory and his greatness. The boy's life to me is a picture of what Satan does to those who yield to him and not to God's spirit. The Bible says that he's a destroyer of men, while our God is a deliverer of our souls. The Bible says that the enemy is a liar and a deceiver from the beginning, but God leads us into all truth, that his word is truth. Sanctify, set apart God's people in truth. What God says is truthful. What the enemy tells us is a lie. We're to never give the enemy a foothold in our life in any area a stronghold or a base of operation. I liken his presence to that of cancer in my own life. And when it becomes known that there's cancer, then you must eradicate it as quickly as possible. And whatever means are necessary to destroy it because it's not content to stay in one place. I mean, the tumor originally was in my leg and now there were two in my lung. And and it's a lesson for all of us in sin. You can't allow sin to take refuge in your life anywhere. You can't justify it, rationalize it, and say, well, it's not that big a deal, it's just this. And after all, I've turned from all these other things. And it's it's just this one little stumbling block that's still in my life that's nonsense. Because it'll lead to something else that'll lead to something else that'll take you down the road and take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. That's why the Bible says if we confess and agree with God that what that is in our life is sin, then he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, we can't, we can't allow that in our life. And I'm going to challenge you as I challenge even myself. Is there any area of your life that's not pleasing to God as God's people? Then you need to confess and agree with God that you're wrong and you need to repent and turn from it. And then watch the greatness of God deliver you from it. See, it's not a question of whether God is able or not because God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond any of us could ever ask or think. The question is whether you're willing to turn from sin and to trust in God. 
Our God is great. Our God is powerful. Our God is majestic. We can see his glory, but we can only see how great he is when we turn those areas of our life over to him. See, the father said, I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not, which brings us to the failure of the disciples in verse 41. The failure of the disciples is, is, you know, why did they fail? You know, think about it. If you recall, they had just returned from their initial ministry trip less than two weeks prior when they had been given power and authority over all demons and to heal diseases. So the question that I have is, in less than a week or a little over a week, what in the world happened to them that they failed to be able to deliver this boy from this demon that was oppressing him? And Jesus gives us the answer quite clearly. He says, oh, unbelieving and perverted generation. Two things. One, they were unbelieving. The root of their lack of power was their unbelief. Their failure wasn't because they didn't try. I mean, I can imagine they tried really hard. They did their very best. They probably even used previously successful formulas. They ran into this boy who's oppressed by a demon. They said, oh, remember this happened when we were out on the road. And remember we said, hey, in the name and the authority of Jesus Christ, be gone from him. And the demon left. They had authority over all demons. All means all. All means everyone, including this one. But this man begged them, and they couldn't, they couldn't remove this demon from this boy. And you have to ask the question, why not? Jesus says, because they were unbelieving. Unbelieving? What do you mean unbelieving? I mean, what happened is, is they went from believing in God's power and His greatness, His glory, His majesty to trusting in themselves and their own ability. Their belief was no longer in God. Their belief was in themselves. And when our belief is in ourselves, we 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 no longer see the majesty and the glory of God. I could just imagine them, as we do so oftentimes, we begin to put more faith and trust in the process than in the one who is the processor. We begin to put more faith and trust in our prayers than in the one who answers prayer. We need to be dependent upon him. And the reason I know a prayer was an issue is because Mark said, Jesus said, it's because you lacked prayer. You didn't pray. You thought it was all about you. You thought the power was now in you. You thought you had the ability to do these things. And because of that unbelief in me and belief in self, you can't do anything. I can just imagine him going like this. Well, let's see, last time, what did we do? What were the words we used? I think we used the words, in Jesus' name, depart, you evil one. Well, I'll do that. In Jesus' name, depart, you evil one. No, no, I don't think it was like that. I think it was, depart, you evil one, in Jesus' name. Depart, you evil one, in Jesus' name. And they were throwing out, I think we threw out the right finger first, and then I think we're throwing out the left finger this time, and all of a sudden, we get so hung up on the mechanics instead of the ultimate mechanic. You know what I'm saying? Have you been there? I prayed this certain prayer exactly this way, and this is how God answered. So now I'll pray the same prayer exactly this way every time because that must be the magic words that open the box that God now gives me what I want when I want. Oh, unbelieving generation. How foolish are we 
Jesus is the one that said, look, you know what? You pray in vain repetition like the Gentiles, the heathens do. You think that the words of your prayers or the ritual or, or the, 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 the ritualistic prayer nature is what God hears. He doesn't hear that. He hears the prayer of a heart that's right before God. He doesn't get hung up on the words, but he knows the heart. God knows our heart when we pray. And God responds to those who are committed to Him. God responds to those who go to Him knowing, God, it's You who are answering our prayers. And it's not even our words, but it's Your ears that hear the cry of our heart. And we trust in You to do what You will. See, God hears our prayers. He, he knows our hearts. And it's not our prayers it's God who answers. This church must be founded on two things. The Word of God and prayer. And I praise God because those 60-some people who showed up on Monday at the hospital, that's not the first time they've ever prayed for me or any of you. They pray continually. They pray without ceasing. And God honors that. But we trust Him to answer the way He chooses. And we praise Him no matter what He does. See, they were unbelieving because they thought it was all about them. If you remember when they came back from the road in uh, chapter 9, verse uh, 10, it says when the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all they had done. Look at all we did. And let me just tell you something. That is the kiss of spiritual death. When we start going, look what I have done, I can't help but think immediately of the parable where the angel said, you fool. Tonight, your very soul is required of you. The man who says, look at all I've done. Look at all the barns I built. Look at all the stuff I stored. Look at me, 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 my, 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 I, 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 I. You know, and it comes down to this. You know what? It's not about you and me. Look what God has done through us. Praise Him and not us. You know, it wasn't what all they had done. They could do nothing without Him. But through Christ who strengthens us, we can do all things. Don't ever forget who gets all the glory. Let us lift Him up. Let us praise Him because it's God who answered prayer. I praise God that I can raise my arm like this. I didn't even think about it, but it hurts now. But, um, <laughs> but I praise God that God answered prayer. But it was God who answered prayer. I, I, I thank you. I encourage you. We pray without ceasing. We pray for one another. We lift one another up. We bear one another's burdens. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with, weep with those who weep. You know, that's our part. But at the end of all of it, we praise God. This is an answer to prayer. It was God's miracle. When a group of people in an operating room say, you know what? <clears throat> this couldn't have gone any better than it did. Then he gets all the praise. He gets all the glory. And when they come walking in the room and say, hey, it was a miracle, wasn't it, Doc? In fact, I, I saw one of the attendants who was at St. Joe's when, when we were there one day to go visit Travis, who was in ICU. And they were convinced that he'd never get off the operating table that day. 
And I saw one of the attendants who was outside my room, and I yelled out and said, Hey, I don't know if you remember me. I was at Travis's room the day that he had surgery, and, and no one thought he would make it. It was an absolute miracle of God that he came through that. And the guy looked at me and said, You're absolutely right. There is no other explanation, but it was God's will. It was God's choice. And God must and always get all the glory and praise for what he does in our life. And we will lift him up. We thank one another. We praise the doctors. I thank them. I appreciate all the things they did. I praise God that he brought a physician in my life who wasn't hurried to just go ahead and take the easy way out and cut whatever he wanted to cut. But that he took his time and he did what he believed was the right thing to do at the right time. And he wasn't in a hurry to do anything other than, okay, let's see what we can do. I praise God for him. I praise God for those nurses. I praise God for those attendants. I praise God for the human effort that was involved in everything that took place. But at the end of the day, let us never get the order messed up. It's God gets all the glory, and then we thank one another for however God uses us in the process. See, when we wrongly start believing we can do this or that, we fail to see the greatness of God. That's why they failed. Desperation drives us to our knees where we should remain for a lifetime, not not just until the crisis is over. Perhaps that's what God is teaching us through my cancer, that we must be a praying people and that we must remain on our knees at all times. You know, that's just one of the many blessings of cancer. You know, I'm a CT scan or MRI away from possibly another surgery. And the Lord has me hanging on to him, which is where I should be, which is where I need to be, which is where he wants me, and which I, in God willing, where I will stay. That's where we must all be. Not only were the disciples unbelieving, they were also, this will bless your day, they were perverted. You know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of places, you know, in churches where it's like, oh, that just sounds so harsh. We just, you know, we can't say, I mean, think about it. You know, it's like Jesus politically correct. Are you kidding me? Oh, you unbelieving and perverted people. Welcome. You're trusting in yourself. You're not trusting in me. You're leaning on your own understanding. You're not leaning in God. You think that you're all this when you're nothing without me and it's time that you recognize that I'm God and you're not. And on top of that, you're perverted. And and what that means, he, he was quoting Deuteronomy 32, which is the famous song of Moses, which every synagogue attending Jew knew well. And the same Greek word translated perverse was used in the version of Deuteronomy, the Greek version of Deuteronomy 32, 5 and 20, where it says, A warped and crooked generation, I will hide my face from you. And see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children who are unfaithful. And every adult here in that audience recognized this quote. What had happened in Moses' time was again happening as Jesus spoke. The people had become twisted, bent, and perverted as a result of their lack of faith and their departure from God. What he's saying is, is that when you stop believing in me, then you will end up going down a crooked and bent road. And God says, his way is narrow. His way is straight. But once you start trusting in yourself and not in God, you end up going down a road that seems right, but its end is destruction. And he was warning them, you're going down the wrong road. 
You're trusting in yourself, and as soon as you do that, you're in for a lot of trouble, and so am I in life. He's saying the reason that you failed is because you're trusting in yourself, and it has led you down the wrong road. How do you get back to the right road? Hey, that's what the Word of God is all about. All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. You know, when you get off the, wrong, you know, you get off the right road, you go down the wrong, wrong road, the Word of God corrects us to get how back up on the main road, the highway to heaven, the road of life, God's way, so we're going back on the straight and narrow. That's the whole purpose of, of Scripture, to get us back to where God wants us to be. And so Jesus points out what the, what the answer is. What's the answer to unbelief and perversion? The answer is faith. The faith that is needed in order to see the greatness of God, notice what he says in verse 42. And while he was still approaching, this father and his son, while he was still approaching, the demon dashed him to the ground and threw him into convulsions. And I want you to recognize this is a strategy of the enemy, and that's this. Notice the resistance of the enemy towards those who are going to Jesus. While he was still approaching Jesus, all hell broke loose to try to keep him from getting there. And isn't that the way it always is? When a person seeks Jesus, the gates of hell, man, just come unloose against that person. And you'll find every obstacle in the world to keep you from hearing the truth of God's love. You invite someone to church, the first thing you hear is, oh man, you should have seen my day. Oh, you should have seen my weekend. I was going to come. I wanted to come. I was all ready to come. And this happened and that happened. Another thing happened. And, oh, I couldn't make it. You sign up for a retreat. Oh, couldn't wait to go. Oh, man, you're going to believe all the stuff that happened. I, I can believe all the stuff that will happen. Because we've got an enemy whose strategy it is to keep you and me from approaching Jesus. Why? Because he's the lover and the healer of our soul. There's nowhere else to go but him. He's got the answer. That's why God the Father said, you listen to him. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Whoever, whoever is weary and heavy laden, you come to me and I will give you rest for your soul. The reason the enemy doesn't want people from com- coming to Jesus is that there's no other name given to man under heaven or authority by which men can be saved. Don't you ever be confused or like, I can't believe this or surprised that you can't make it to church that you can't make it to Bible study, that you can't make it to retreat, that you can't make it to the prayer you know, time, that you can't make it to choir practice. You, there's, you know, listen, there's a zillion excuses why you can't make it, and I'm telling you, underlying reason is one and very simple one, because we have an enemy whose strategy it is to keep us from the presence and the glory and the majesty and the greatness of God. Don't. Let him stop you. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And then you get to where he wants you to be. Don't let anybody or anything stop you from going to Jesus. We need to have the desperation of the leper who said, I don't care what you people think. No one has been able to heal me. No one has been able to help me. I am rotten away. These fingers fell off this week. This is all falling off this time. And you know what? I don't care what anybody else has to say. Only Jesus can heal me. And I don't care. Leper, leper, whatever. I'm going to Jesus. And you're not going to stop me. God honors that heart. God receives that one who comes to him and says, Lord, have mercy on me. 
for I am a sinner. Save me. I trust you. I trust in your blood shed on the cross. I trust in your resurrection. I trust that when I receive you as my Savior, that you will come in and that you will have fellowship with me. That I will be born again by your will and by your spirit, not by my own efforts or my own works. I believe your word. I trust you. Save me. Here I am. God answers that prayer. See, the enemy doesn't want us to know Jesus. The enemy doesn't want us to know his truth and his word. The enemy doesn't want us to see the greatness of our God. The enemy doesn't want us to see his power and his majesty and his glory. Because, you know, once we do, we'll never go back to anything else. Now, how does Jesus respond? Look at the response of Jesus to evil, and I love this. It says, but Jesus... But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit. You'll remember it's a word that often is the case in the middle of chaos and confusion and heartache and hardship and all the rest of it. And Jesus rebuked them. What he said was, shut up. In the middle of chaos and in confusion, I thought about this when I was in the pre-op room. I was, I'm laying there and, and Linda's there and my son is there and, 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 you know, and, the, and the anesthesiologist comes in and, and the surgeon wasn't there yet and the nurse came in. And so the anesthesiologist, bless his heart, was, was, a, was a guy who you know, was reading down all the list of things that you know, he had to share with me. And so he said, you know, we're going to let you know, uh, you know, what is it that you're having done? And, you know, and you got to do the little mark and stuff. And, you know, we've got arrows pointing everywhere. Just don't touch this. You can go over this way. Don't. But, uh, but, but um, what happened was he was there. Okay, he goes, uh, now what are you here to do? Well, my understanding, doctor, is that I'm going to have my right middle lobe excised, which means removed, which, you know, he said, okay, good. Check that off. Um, well, you know, when he got into the thing about, well, we're going to stick this to, now, you know that when you come out, you'll be in ICU. You know that, right? And he could tell by my body language. That was the first time I heard that. And I went, oh, no, but now I do. And he said, well, and what we're going to have to do is we're going to deflate this lung. We're going to keep this lung inflated. We're going to have this tube that goes down your throat. And it's a longer one. It's a bigger one because, you know, in case anything happens, we'll have to, you know, put you on a ventilator. And then we're going to put these really big IVs in you because when we do that, that way when, when and if you need blood transfusions, we'll be able to get the blood into your system a lot quicker. And, uh, and he was just like, matter of fact, just kind of reading it like that. And, you know, and at the end of all of it, and he was, he was talking, and he finally got to the point where his lips were moving and nothing was going in. And, and so I, I just I was laying there and, and, and I just prayed. I said, Lord, you know what? You're not a God of confusion. I'm in your hands. Just give me your peace. Oh, my eyes up again. Everybody's still there. And, uh, and they said, do you have any questions? And I said, you know what? I don't have any questions. God is in control. He brought you. He brought the A team to me. I'm in his hands. I'm in your hands. Let's go do this. And they started wheeling me out. And I had a peace that I can't explain because it's the peace that surpasses all understanding. When you know that you're in God's hands and we walk, you know, we go, walk to the door and you go through one door and everybody else goes the other way, the same way you wish you were going. <laughs> but you can't because they got you strapped down. And uh, so when they take you in the room and they said, okay, we're going to give you an epidural, which I thought, I'm not having a baby. <laughs> I don't know what would have been more painful, but... And they said, okay, well, when you come in, it's like lean over the, you know, on, your, on your gurney and put your head down on the table like this. And, so, and then bow up your back so that we can stick a needle in the middle of your spine. And as I'm just kind of bowed over like that, we're, we're having this great conversation. 
you know, I'm talking about, you know, talking about what God's doing in our church, talking about all the people that are out there praying, talking about, you know, here we meet at the, you know, and the guy's like, well, where do you guys meet? Oh, we meet at the Elks Lodge down in Santa Ana, you know, just all bent over and, you know, and we got God provide this property and we're in the middle of all these construction drawings and, you know, and, and it's like, you know, we're having this great conversation about the Lord and spiritual things. And that's where that conversation stopped because it was like, okay, now bye-bye. And, uh, you know, then I woke up looking at Les. <laughs> However, back to Luke, you know, it, it, and, and, and the point is it's never a question of God's abilities. It's a matter of his will. It's never can he, but will he. And once again, it was his will to rebuke evil, to heal this boy, to return him and restore him back to his father. What a wonderful picture of our salvation. Those who repent and turn from sin and respond by God's grace to the finished work of Christ, who receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Jesus came to rebuke the devil and sin and death, to restore us to a position as children of God and to return us to our Father, who our citizenship is in heaven. And one day, that's where we'll be. You know, and it all starts with one simple thing, coming to Jesus. It all starts with coming to Jesus. Bring your son to me. And I'll tell you what, fellas. That's a powerful command. Bring your son to me. Do you have a son? Do you have a daughter? Do you realize what a tremendous responsibility that we have to bring our children to Jesus? And the only way that we can bring our children to Jesus is that we have to be with Jesus. We have to be with Him. We have to lead by example. Our tongue and our, 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 the tongue of our shoes and the tongue of our mouth, our, our lips and our life have to be in harmony. So when they see my dad loves Jesus, and if my dad loves Jesus, that's good enough for me, I'll love Jesus. If they see my mom loves Jesus, that's good enough for me, I'll love Jesus. And when they see their dad getting wheeled in an operating room saying, you know what? It's okay, because God loves us. And don't you ever let the enemy tell you anything but that. That he has given us his best. He has given us his son, his only begotten son. That whosoever would believe on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Don't you ever let anybody tell you that our God is not good. He is good. He is great. He is majestic. He is worthy to be praised. And just because this is his choice or will for me in my life doesn't mean that he's not a good God. And you know what? And when they see that in your life, they say, if it's okay, Dad, with you, it's okay with us. We're all going to trust him together. Bring your son to me. What was the reaction of those who witnessed the greatness of God? We'll put it all together with, and they were amazed at the majesty or the greatness of God. All his greatness and majesty is all around us today. Now I want you to look around. His greatness is demonstrated in the most profound way by changed lives. 
folks who were delivered from unbelief and idolatry and sexual perversion and alcohol and drug addiction, delivered from adultery and homosexuality and fornication and lying and cheating and stealing, delivered from abuse, delivered from cults and various confusing philosophies of this world to truth that sets us free to a loving God and loving others as God intended. We all need firsthand observation of His majesty as seen in the healing of our broken lives. Personal and corporate worship takes us onto the Mount of Transfiguration where we see Jesus shine. And evangelism brings that light, that majesty, down to the reality of living every day. We go to the mountaintop to be refreshed and renewed and invigorated. We dwell in the presence. We're enveloped in the glory of God, the Shenina Shenina glory of God. Shenina, Shenina. The meds are kicking in. Yeah, whatever. And the glory of God. And then we come down in the world and we reflect that glory to people around us. We light up like Moses lit up and as the world sees us, they go, wow, you know what? What's different about you? We're we're to be, let our light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. These good deeds or beautiful work are possible only as God works through us in our lives and they reflect His splendor. Do others see the glory and the greatness of God in you? It was 3.30 in the morning, something like 3.30 in the morning, and, and one of the attendants came in, and, you know, and, and I had conversations with him throughout the course of the night, and we got into a conversation, and, and, and throughout the course of that conversation, I was able to share that, that I was a Christian. And he said, I knew there was something different about you. I said, really? He goes, yeah, I knew by the way that you talked to me. I knew by the way that you responded to me. I knew by the way that you treated me that there was something different about you. You know, I'm not sure exactly. It can only be Christ living within one when you thank somebody for coming in and waking you up at 3.30 to take your blood pressure. (laughs) I mean, it doesn't make... It's like, you know, thanks, Oz. You're welcome. And he's walking out of the room going, what in the world? And he came back again and again, and we had great conversations, and finally said, you know, about six months ago, I gave my life to Jesus Christ as my Savior. And I'm just learning, and I'm not sure. And it's like, hey, man, there's some CDs and some stuff at the table. You know, grab whatever, you know. And uh, would you do me a favor and shut the door when you leave? I said, yeah, okay. Philippians 2.15, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like the stars of the universe. Isn't that great? See, the, the, the greatness of God is demonstrated in His power over evil, and it's also in closing displayed in His plan of escape for you and me from the consequences of sin. I want you to notice, the Bible says that, and Jesus turned to them while everyone was marveling at what, what He was doing. He said to His disciples, let these words sink in. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Delivered into the hands of men by the predetermined plan of God. Folks, it has always been God's plan to deliver Jesus Christ up on the cross so that those who would trust and believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. 
there's this tremendous controversy going on about the, the passion of Christ, the movie that's coming out. And the reason is very simple. You know, they try to make it anti-Semitic, that the Jews killed Jesus. Let me tell you something. According to God's word, the Jews not only killed Jesus, Gentiles killed Jesus. We all killed Jesus because our sins put him on the cross. But I want you to know something even, even more important than that, and that is this. It was God's plan to deliver Jesus to the cross. By his predetermined plan, it was God's choice to deliver Jesus to the cross. That whosoever would look upon him raised on that cross, believing in his death and his resurrection, would not perish but have everlasting life. The plan of the cross is God's plan. It's his idea. It's not man's. And we respond to it either by receiving him, accepting his plan, or rejecting it. The reason why the cross of Christ is so offensive is that it leaves no room for anything else. You either... Accept God's plan for you, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, or you reject God's plan, and rejection of God's plan has eternal damning consequences. Why is there such a controversy? Very simple. Because it's the strategy of the enemy to take attention away from the message of the movie, which is Jesus Christ and Him crucified for the sins of the world, the only Savior of God, His chosen one, His anointed one. Listen to Him. And it takes you down a rabbit trail that says, oh, well, let's put our attention on anti-Semitism. That's not the message of the cross. The message of the cross is God's love. The message of the cross is that God paid the price for your sin and mine. And if we believe that Christ died for us and rose again, we shall be saved. That is the message of the cross. And we will have ample opportunities to use something like that movie as just a springboard and to share in the gospel with friends and family. It is not anti-Semitism that is the problem. It is the fact that it is anti-Satanic. The message is an offense to Satan and the enemies of God. And it is the power of God in Him alone. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He said, let it sink in, fellas. And you know what? And they were afraid to ask Him anything. And the reason was simple. They knew, because in Mark's translation, they were afraid to hear what they didn't want to hear. They knew that there would be implications for their life. Not only would Jesus die on the cross, but they would pay a price as well. And Jesus said, deny yourself, pick up your cross daily and follow me. But you know what? There's no glory without suffering. There's no exaltation without humility. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the demonstration of your power that leads us to recognize your greatness. Thank you for answering prayer. Thank you for being there. Thank you for hearing the cries of our heart. Thank you for giving us a glimpse of your glory and majesty so that we will be renewed and refreshed and invigorated and empowered for the work that you have called and chosen us to do. Thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ, that he took the burden of sin upon himself, so that all who would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God, as always, we pray that if there's anybody hearing your words that are not sure of your, their relationship with you, 
that they would turn from sin, that they would acknowledge their need for forgiveness. God, forgive me, for I am a sinner. And I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I believe that that was your plan from the beginning. I believe that he rose from the dead. And I believe that he stands at the door where even now of my, of my life and knocks, and God, to the best of my ability, the best of my understanding, I open the door of my life to him as my Lord and Savior. God, we thank you that the power of your word and the authority of your word, that we recognize that those who receive you are children of God to those who believe in, in, your, in your name. That it's not even in our words or in our prayers, but it is in you, the one who answers such prayers, where the power lies and the greatness lies and the glory lies and the majesty lies. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you. And may we be that light that shines in darkness, like a thousand stars in a, in a crooked and a perverse generation those who do not believe in you and have gone down a crooked road as a result. May you use our lives to draw people to your son for your glory and for your praise. Amen.